0: rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil let's flip the question let's define life instead but to do that we must first seek it out so join us as we dare as we seek life. hey everybody welcome to the Deresh Chai experiment the show where we look through the bible using the patterns of life that surround us and we use them as the basis and the foundation for our own search through the pages of scripture This week we're in Genesis 26, beginning in verse 11, and then going through the end of the chapter. We're all familiar with the patriarchs of Israel, the three fathers from which the tribes of Israel were descended. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the God I serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the narratives of Genesis, they center around these three men, and they provide highlights from their lives that teach us lessons about God and about our relationship to God. Last week we read the very last of the story of Abraham as he died, and the narrative of the text made it very clear that the blessing was passing to Isaac and not to Ishmael, or any of the other sons that Abraham had. And this week, the narrative shifts. In fact, for the last few weeks there has been very little said about Abraham, not since the death of Sarah. And just after the Akedah, it seems as if scripture used the opportunity to take some time and introduce a new set of characters rebecca and laban to be specific but it also chose to close out the story of abraham and ishmael and beginning in chapter 26 we find now that isaac becomes the main actor in the narrative of genesis and as we read pay close attention because isaac is an archetype of our messiah as i've talked about before and this chapter this chapter is the only chapter in genesis in which isaac is the main character Up until now, Isaac has been a character that has been acted upon by others. Whether it's Abraham taking him to be sacrificed, whether it's Ishmael mocking him, or whether it's the servant going to get him a wife. After this chapter, Isaac will be a character that is again acted upon by others. In the story of the stealing of the blessing by Jacob from Esau. That's really the only times that we read of Isaac. And that leaves us with this chapter being the only one in which Isaac is the main actor. Why is this? Well, he is an archetype of Yeshua, and yet this is the only chapter that we have of him. This confusing chapter, frankly, is the only image that we get of him other than other people acting upon him. We've had 12 chapters of Abraham as the main actor. We'll have nine chapters of Jacob as the main actor and even 13 chapters of Joseph as the main actor with Jacob still hanging around in the background. But only one chapter of Isaac. What is it about this chapter that's so vitally important that this is all we're told about this person? Especially since this is one of those chapters that no one teaches in Sunday school and it's rarely if ever, even touched from the pulpit. Well, let's read this chapter and then we'll discuss what this chapter holds for a modern audience. Genesis 26, 12-35 And Yitchak sowed in the land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and Hashem blessed him. And the man grew great and went forward until he became very great. And he came to have possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great body of servants, and the Philistines envied him. And the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Avraham his father, and filled them with dirt. And Avimelech said to Yitschak, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Yitschak went from there, and he pitched his tent in the Wadi Garar, and he settled there. And Yitschak dug again the wells of the water which they had dug in the days of Avraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. and he called them by the names which his father had called them. But when Yitzchak's servants dug in the wadi and found a well of running water there, the herdsmen of Gerar strove with Yitzchak's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Esek, because they strove with him. And they dug another well, and they strove over that one too, and he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there, and he dug another well, and they did not strive over it. And he called its name Rechavot, and said, For now Hashem has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba, And Hashem appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the Elohim of your father Avraham. Do not fear, for I am with you, and I shall bless you and increase your seed for my servant Avraham's sake. And he built an altar there, and he called on the name of Hashem. And he pitched his tent there, and the servants of Yitzhak dug a well there. And Avimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzat, one of his friends and pichor the commander of his army. And Yitzhak said to him, Why have you come to me? seeing that you have hated me and have sent me away from you. But they said, We have clearly seen that Hashem is with you. And we said, Please, let there be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you do no evil to us, as we have not touched you, and as we have done only good towards you, and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed by Hashem. And he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And they rose early in the morning, and they swore an oath with one another, and Yitshak let them go, and they departed from him in peace. And on the same day it came to be that the servants of Yitshak came and informed him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheva. Therefore the name of the city is Be'er Sheva to this day. And when Esau was forty years old, he took his wives, Yehudit, the daughter of Bari, the Chittite, and Beismat, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite. And they were a bitterness of spirit to Yitzhak and Rivka. So as I've said before, this chapter holds a lot of challenges to a modern audience. There are several things that we should recognize taking place in this chapter. And that is, one, there is very little new happening in this chapter. Everything that Isaac does in this chapter is something that was done earlier by his father, Abraham. Whether it's telling the Philistines that his wife was his sister, redigging the wells that his father had already dug, or making a covenant with Avimelech at a place called Beersheba. Each of these things, Abraham already did them. Two, as I mentioned before, this chapter is the only narrative we have with Isaac as the main character. And three, if we look at the entire book of Genesis chiastically, thematically, this chapter is the center. Of the book of Genesis. Everything in the rest of Genesis revolves around what occurs in this chapter. So on the one hand, this chapter is boring in that it is repetitive and it's confusing. On the other hand, it's extremely unique in that it's all that we have of Isaac as a patriarch. And on top of that, this is the thematic center of Genesis, the center of it all? How do we reconcile these things together with the text that we're reading? And once again, I believe the text is way more complicated than we want to give it credit for. The tension between this chapter's uniqueness, this chapter's importance, and the boredom that this chapter induces and the confusing sequence of events that occur in this chapter all culminate here. And We could talk about the Son acting in the image of the Father. But that's something we talked about back in Genesis 5, so I don't want to rehash that. However, that is something that we should not miss. Isaac is, in this chapter, mirroring his father into the world. And as we'll see, he begins to learn to mirror God's image into the world. So as Parsha opens with Isaac in Garar, He sows in the land of Garar, and he reaps a hundredfold. Now, if we pay attention to the repetition of phrases, we should notice this one. This wording of reaping a hundredfold is only found this one place in all of the Old Testament, or the Older Testament, or the Tanakh. This phrase is one that is repeated at least seven times in the New Testament, and all of them in the Gospels, and all of them as words of Yeshua. So what is it about this chapter that Yeshua wanted to draw our attention to? Well, in Matthew 13:8 and 23, Mark 4, 8 and 20, and Luke 8, 8, they all tell a very similar story, and that is the parable of the sower. If anybody doesn't know, quick little recap. The parable of the sower goes something like this. There was a man who went out to sow his field, and he took his seed, and he threw it on the ground, and there were four kinds of ground that the seed reached. There was the rocky ground, the thorny ground, the path, and and the good soil. And the seed From each of these, the four unfavorable places, it doesn't grow, it doesn't something comes along and prevents it from bearing fruit. That fourth set of ground, however, that fourth set of ground is something that does bring forth fruit, and when it brings forth fruit, it brings forth a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. So, the man who sowed the word of God is the sower, and Three-quarters of the seed that this man sows is destroyed in various ways. One might call that a famine scenario. Perhaps even the famine that is referenced by the prophet Amos in Amos 8.11, when he says, See, the days are coming, declares the Master Hashem, that I shall send a hunger in the land, not a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of Hashem. But in the end, the man who sowed, he reaped thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And in the same way, Isaac, while in Gerar, because of a famine, because Gerar itself, it was not outside of the land, Isaac moved, but he didn't move out of the famine zone. He sowed into soil and circumstances in which reaping should not have been possible. And not only did he reap, he ended up reaping a hundredfold of what he sowed. This congruence of text, it paints for us a picture of the sower, the preacher of the word of God, one might say, the evangelist, in the land that is not ideal for planting or sowing anyway, and yet God blesses that sowing with great return. This idea of the seed being sown into famine-like conditions is not something that is isolated to this portion of Scripture. The metaphor of sowing, seed, and famine and reaping shouldn't be lost on us, and it's one that Yeshua and the prophets lean very heavily upon. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in this metaphor of the sowing and reaping. The concept of reaping a hundredfold, like I said, it's used by Yeshua in a couple of other places. And I think that these other locations outside of the story can help us to leapfrog into another topic that's under discussion in this passage. So Matthew 19.29 says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. The one who's left houses, family lands, they will reap a great reward. And once again, we see the topic of Genesis 26 being approached because Abraham had left all that he had. Isaac also, at the onset of this famine in the land, he left his home and was forced into a new place." That's a very loose connection, so let's look to see if maybe it appears somewhere else. Let's look to Mark 10, 29-30. And once again, this particular passage seems to be recounting what we just read in Matthew 19, the same words of Yeshua. But however, there's something added in this Mark passage that I don't think we should miss. So in Mark 10, 29-30, it says, Yeshua said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake and the good news, the gospel, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come everlasting life. So, what was it that Mark added that Matthew had left out? Well, it's what we see happening in the greater part of this chapter one of those things that a man who has left all can expect to reap alongside these houses, brothers, children's lands, and such. And that's persecutions. He will reap persecutions a hundredfold. In the age to come, however, everlasting life. But that one thing, that one thing that most of us really don't want to acknowledge that's in the text, persecutions. The sower of the seed, the one who leaves everything for the will of God, will reap persecution. Now, if we sit back and we consider this chapter as a whole, there is one thread that runs through the entire chapter. No matter where Isaac goes, he's persecuted. Where is it that Isaac finds himself in this chapter? This one chapter with him as the primary actor. He's in Gerar. Where is Gerar? Gerar is in Philistia. He is in the land that's been promised to him, but is among the nations at the same time. He's living in Gerar, but he is not of Gerar. And because of this, the residents of Gerar hate him. In John 17, 14, it says, I have given them your word, and the world hated them, because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. And Romans 12, 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you prove what is that good and well-pleasing and perfect desire of God. Isaac is in their midst, and they can tell that he is blessed by Hashem, and they want nothing to do with him. They eject him from the places in which he attempts to reproduce the work of his father. Isaac attempts to dig wells, sources of water, in their midst, and they drive him away because of this. If he had sat in place without digging wells, would they have just have hated without trying to push him out? Because they had stopped up the wells of Abraham, they had stopped up the water from flowing. Do we do this in our own lives? Do we stop the source of blessing in life simply because we don't like the source of it? We don't like where it originated from, its history. Perhaps we don't like the messenger himself. Jeremiah speaks of this happening among the people of Israel, and Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, cracked cisterns, which do not hold water. The people of Gerar rejected Avraham and made for themselves wells that failed and held no water when the famine came. And this whole scenario introduces an idea that has been present from the very beginning, but which hasn't been really developed to any significant degree until now. Those who are in covenant with God and who are blessed by God will be hated by those who are not. God's blessing, even though it doesn't always look like blessing, will set you at odds with the world around you. And we did touch on this idea back in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. We saw this this theme approached or introduced at that time. Abel was the one accepted by God, and he seemed to be blessed. And what was Cain's response? To get rid of the blessed one, get him out of my midst. He happens to go so far as to murder him. We will see this once again before the end of Genesis. In fact, we'll see the same scenario play out in the life of Jacob as he travels to Haran to stay with Laban. While there, Jacob will be blessed over Laban, and it will lead to Laban and his sons hating Jacob. And only after he has left their land of his own free will will they then track him down and make a covenant with him that he won't come back and attack them. In fact, if we wanted to, we could track this pattern throughout scripture enough times to establish it as a pattern of possibility. But I'm not going to do that to any great extent right now. So in Genesis 4, we explored the topic of how we ourselves react when we see others receiving blessing and we're left out. Our cane nature taking over and we seek to be rid of the one who is receiving God's blessing. In this chapter, however, we're faced with the perspective of the man who is the one who is blessed and hated. This chapter gives a view into the situation of Abel. And the fact is that if you are in the covenant of Messiah and you are actively walking that covenant out, you will be hated by the world. They will not accept you. They will act in the manner of the names of those first two wells. The first well which was dug was called Esek, and it means contention. And so Isaac went and he dug another well, and that well was named Sitna, or Strife. And these are the attitudes that you will find directed towards you as you begin to deliver water, the water of life, to the parched, as you sow seed into this great famine. So, what's the best response when this happens? Well, what does Isaac do in verse 22? Move on. And that's the pattern that Yeshua gave to his disciples when he sent them out to minister to the world, when he sows them as seeds into the world, if you will. Matthew 10, 11-14, And into whatever city or village you enter, ask who is worthy in it and stay there until you leave. And as you enter into a house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you, and whoever does not receive you nor heed your words when you leave that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. It's in this new place, this third place that Isaac arrives in, he digs a well once again, he brings forth water, and finally, there is no more strife, there is no more contention. He has found a place in which he is welcome, and in response he names the well Rechavot or expansion, because, as he said, room has been made and we shall be fruitful. Suddenly, after several tries, Isaac has found success. He's found a place where he can grow. So what does he do next? He moves! He wasn't forced to, but he moved again. It's as if he's fulfilling the words of Yeshua to his disciples in Matthew 10. The well being a symbol of the word of God being spread. The kingdom of promise being fruitful and expanding. He built the well. He planted it. The water is coming forth in that area. Let's move on to somewhere new and dig another and another. Sometimes they'll get stopped up. Sometimes they'll be allowed to flow. And when they are, we don't need to stay there. Move again. You've got the water coming forth. Life is coming to that part of the world. Now, let's go somewhere where it's not. So, my question is, why would he move on when he had found that place to grow? And that's the natural question, and this is one that the text addresses in the very next segment, which, again, we tend to miss. So when he moves on this last time, Hadanai Hashem appears to him once again, and he gives a blessing that's repeated that was given before, but there's a difference this time. Remember what we do with differences? We've done this several times, when something appears to be repeated, Look for the differences in them, and the differences can point you to a glaring truth. So, the blessing the second time consists of the promise to increase Isaac's seed. But there's something missing from that previous blessing, and that is the promise of the land. Why? Why is the land missing when God reiterates the message to Isaac after he's been forced to move these many times? Is that God's like, ah, oh, crap. Well, I guess they're not going to let you settle there amongst them, so call off this blessing of the land." No, that's not what's going on at all. I may be stretching here, but I think that if we look to verse 17 when Isaac gets to the Wadi Gerar, we'll find out what happened, why it is that God leaves the land out. And it's because Isaac chooses to dwell there. Now, this word dwell in the Hebrew is the word yeshav, and literally this word means to sit. But by implication, it takes on the meaning of dwelling or settling. It can even mean to marry or to become permanently attached. Perhaps Isaac, when God told him the promise in the first place, I will increase your seed and give you the land. Maybe Isaac took the land too immediately. He had the idea of name it and claim it. God has told me that the land will be mine, so I might as well make it home now. He's promised it'll happen, so I'm taking hold of that promise. I'm seizing God's promises. Uh, we saw this attitude before in Abraham and Sarah. Because Abraham was promised a son, and so they took it upon themselves to accomplish this promise under their own power. And what did that taking of the promise, that seizing a hold of the promise, lead to in that situation? And it led to strife, and it led to contention. And we'll see this very similar thing occur in the story of Joseph. God promising something to him early, and then him attempting to seize hold of that promise, and then it all falling apart. Perhaps Isaac was exhibiting more qualities here that he gained from his father than the ones that are apparent on the surface. I've seen this attitude among brothers as well. God has given me a dream of X thing, and so I'm going to go out and make sure that X things happen. I will do whatever it takes because I have God on my side. I simply cannot fail. And then all that comes from it is strife and contention and usually failure in one form or another. Is it because God is not true to his promises? Or is it because we're misinterpreting and mishearing what it is that God is saying? Regardless of that, after the second blessing, what do we read of Isaac in verse 25? He pitched his tent as he did earlier in verse 17, but this time he doesn't dwell. He doesn't settle there. Once he's out of the land of the Philistines, once he's no longer a threat to them, how do they respond? They seek him out because Isaac is clearly put out at them for their previous actions. And so he asks, why do you come to me? You hate me. You have sent me away from you. But the truth is, they protect their own, and so they say, we wish to make a covenant with you. We haven't actually done you any harm, so just promise that you won't come back and harm us. And in this, the pattern that we see with Laban and upcoming stories is nearly exact. Even the mention of good and evil is present here as it is in that later story. They say that you are blessed by God, and so we are compelled to take action lest you decide to come against us. What do you know? That's the same excuse Pharaoh makes with the children of Israel in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. You're blessed by God, and so we're compelled to take action against you, just in case you decide to come against us. The people, fruitful, increasing, king afraid of them, and rather than making a covenant of peace at that time, however, that king in the Exodus makes a covenant of death with them. And again, we'll recognize this pattern in the life of Yeshua. The kingdom of God is coming forth, it's fruitful, it's increasing. The ruling class, they become afraid of the implications of their own potential loss of power. And so they make a pact with death in order to remove the threat. You see, Cain Cain won't always kill just the righteous. In some cases, Cain will simply kick the righteous out of their midst and then seek to leave in peace and under no threat of having You return, having able the blessed one, return and ruin their status quo. And that's the power of this chapter, is that the world cannot stomach the existence of the people of God in their midst. And that's a truth that will continue as long as nations and the option to choose other than God exists. Mark 13.13 says, And you shall be hated by me because of my name, but he who shall have endured to the end, he shall be saved. And John fifteen, twenty through twenty five says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they shall persecute you too. And if they have guarded my word, they would guard yours too. But all this they shall do to you because of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and sent them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I did not do among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have both seen and have hated both me and my father. But that the word might be fulfilled which was written in their Torah, they hated me without a cause. That's a hallmark of living a life in the shadow of Yeshua, in the image of Yeshua. Sometimes it's simply a matter of, don't come near us, we don't want you in our midst. Other times it's a matter of life and death. So a while back I read a book called The Gulag Archipelago. It took me months to get through it's a huge volume. And it is a heart-wrenching account of the rise of the Soviet Gulag state. And it contains accounts of those who lived through the atrocities of those inhuman work camps. At one point in the book, the systems of government, they're attempting to bring a man known simply as you in the book into the cadre of informants that the state depended on because even once you were in camp informants still worked for those in charge of the camp to inform upon those who were in the camp, and there were further prisons even inside the camp. Each time, the organs of the state, they would refresh their attempts to compel him. Uh, So, this you, this, this man you, he held out through several attempts, and each partially succeeding in keeping him free from the fate of being forced to rat others out. Each time, though, the organs of the state would they refresh their attempts, and they would compel him through one form or another, from threat to enticement to outright torture. Yu finally decides, "I've had enough of this," and he goes to his last resort. He tells the interrogators, "I must tell you frankly that I had a Christian upbringing, and therefore it's quite impossible for me to work with you." And just like that, it stopped. He was never approached again. To act as an informant. After recounting this story, Alexander the the man who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, he reflects on the implications of that episode, and his conclusion is this. And does the impartial reader not find that they flee from Christ-like devils, and from the sign of the cross from being called to mass? And that is why our Soviet regime can never come to terms with Christianity, and the French communist promises to the contrary. Mean nothing. How interesting. A regime of death, one who was hostile to anything Christian in any way, could not cooperate even with the thought of Messiah being in their midst. In every case, if they discovered a person was a believer, they imprisoned that person. Not with any simple charge, but with treason. The greatest charge possible. And this same thing, it didn't just happen in Soviet Russia. This same thing happened in Maoist China, and it happened in Hitler's Germany. We hear only of the Jews that were sent to the chambers in Germany, but the Christians who actually acted like Christians and protected their brothers and sisters also went into the camps. Those who are not willing to even hear the message of Christ, of the Messiah, will silence that message. They will discard any who speak it. And at a certain point, they'll discard even those who think positively of it. The horrors experienced by those who were put in the gulag are simply incomprehensible in our day and age. We like to think that we are prepared that when it comes we would be willing to lay our head down on the chopping block like some pacified sheep. But we can't even take being called a bigot or a hater. Our own egos won't let us put ourselves out there to be hurt in an intangible, emotional, and societal way. Will we really simply accept death when it comes? What if it comes in the form of forced labor? What if it comes only hours? days, or months of torture. It certainly happened before. We like to picture the persecution of the enemy in the last days as simply being caught off with your head, and that's it. Done. No questioning, no trials, no tortures, no hardship at all. Just that momentary discomfort of a prison cell, and then the end. But that type of martyrdom? That's a rarity. Could you hold up to the long term? Could you hold up under increased mental pressure, brainwashing? Could you hold up to this type of torture, to mental pressure? Because it may be required of you someday. The possibility of just such a tragedy, it arose at the time of Esther. The Jews, the people of God in the midst of Persia, they were called out as the people that the world simply cannot live with. We cannot have them living amongst us. It is they, those people of God, they prevent us from having the peace and the unity that we so deserve and seek. And in that instance, God intervened, and it didn't occur. That's not always going to be the case. I'm sorry to get so dark here, especially when we're looking at a Parsha in which no one dies, and the only real hardship is that Isaac is forced to move and move and move again to try and find a place where he can live in peace. No one in this parsha is forced to make the decision between God and death, but the pattern's there, at least the seeds of it. It finds its footing in this story. Because Abimelech, he didn't want Isaac around. He feared Isaac. And that same fear gripped Pharaoh. That same fear gripped Stalin. It gripped Hitler. It gripped Mao. This idea that we can't control them, and perhaps. They might grow too powerful, and they might overthrow us. And so, we must act proactively, and we must prevent this eventuality. We must stop the threat before it can be realized, because God is obviously on their side. The life of faith is not one that's going to make all of your dreams come true. If that's your reason for believing, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to the wrong person. The life of faith in God of Israel is one that will put you at odds with your neighbors. It will set families at each other's throats. It will take everything from you and force you to rely on a power that is not your own. Can you do it? The answer is, and always will be, no. You can't. You won't. You, you will want to give up. Your flesh itself is at war with your faith, and it is contrary to all that makes you, you. The only way to make it is found in this Parsha. To be in the covenant whose seed will inherit the earth. To be part of that family of blessing. We will overcome in the end. And Revelation 12.11 gives us the keys to how we will overcome. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their witness. And they did not love their lives to death. The blood of the Lamb, they were confident. The word of their witness, they told their story. And they didn't love the life they had on this earth right now, to the point where death, it's a nuisance. And that's all it is to us, to you, to me, to those who are of Messiah Yeshua, those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a nuisance. It is something that will happen. It is something we will get to experience. It will be painful. It will be something that we will seek to avoid because we are human. But we can't love it so much that we won't willingly accept death if it comes for us, because. I've said it before, if you are of Yeshua, you're immortal now. You don't have to wait to be immortal later, you're immortal now. When death comes, you'll sleep, you'll be with Yeshua in some way, and you will be resurrected. You will be resurrected in the first resurrection that gets to rule and to reign here on earth with Messiah, and then you also get to be part of the new creation when it is founded here on earth. You get to do that. Because you're immortal. That's life. That's a true expression of life. What we live now, it's just a sign, it's a symbol, it's a pointer to that something greater. So let's seek that. Rather than seeking to live here and now, let's seek that life. De'er Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to De'er If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we De'er as we seek life. Shalom.